All right, so my kids, um, since we've been homeschooling, I have enjoyed being able to spend a lot more Bible time with them, and I like that we can do it first thing in the morning, which is really nice. We have a lot more time for that. I was joking with Annie that we have a two-hour delay every day. <laughs> so we have a two-hour delay, we eat breakfast, and then we do Bible time, and then the rest of it. But they've been studying Exodus the last couple of weeks, and as we were talking about the plagues, I took them to Revelation one morning. I, did, I didn't plan on doing this. It just kind of came about. And I showed them how a lot of the plagues in Exodus are going to be revisited in the end time. I don't know if you guys realize that or not. Kind of in a different way. I mean, a lot more intense, really. Um, but when you start looking through it, like Revelation 8 talks about the different trumpets. The first trumpet includes hail. And then later in Revelation 16, it talks about 100-pound hailstones. Like this big, 100-pound <laughs> hailstones. That's crazy. Uh, the second trumpet in Revelation 8 talks about turning the sea into blood. So you have that revisited. Later in Revelation, it says all the waters will become blood. And then the fourth trumpet has to do with darkness. Oh, they loved it. Well, didn't love it. It was a little terrifying. But uh, yes, I was terrifying them. Chapter 9 is the fifth trumpet, and it's about locusts coming. I mean, you can see how it's being revisited. Only this time, the locusts, I haven't ever studied that chapter. They have tails and stingers like scorpions, and they're sent to torment people for five months, but they have a face of a human and like the body of a horse. Like, it's just this crazy description. And yeah, I was like, yeah, guys, this is, this is real. Like, we don't, I don't know what level this is just um, wasn't it John? He was on the island of Patmos. Yeah. He's a, so I don't know. I, he had a hard time obviously describing what was going on and what he was seeing. So I don't know how much is just his visual description and how much is actually like, this is the way it's going to be. But this is God bringing his judgment on the earth. Like this is real. This is prophecy. The sixth trumpet then is as one third of those on the earth will die. So you see these plagues coming back through, and I didn't want to scare them. That wasn't the idea. So we talked also about how believers in Christ, how we are not destined for God's wrath. So I did include that part. So they weren't like, oh, what's going to happen to us? <laughs> it does, and I was like, you know what, guys? It doesn't mean that bad things aren't going to happen to us. It doesn't mean that we couldn't be martyred through our faith. It, but it, it, doesn't mean that, it does mean that God will protect us from his wrath. So we might feel the wrath of Satan or an enemy, but we will not, I don't believe, that's my personal belief, but that we will experience God's <coughs> wrath. We are his children, and he has promised in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10 to protect us from his wrath, whatever that's going to look like. So my whole point in starting this way tonight and, and relaying that to them is I wanted them to see that there's, an, there's another side of God besides love. There's another side besides grace and mercy and we, we love those things we're so thankful for them we experience them every day but there is this side of God that is dangerous there's a side of God that needs to be feared and we don't spend a lot of time studying that side or fearing him very much what else I thought was really interesting with these um, and looking at these different plagues is that while they're happening there's people singing praises to God. So I'll just read you one of them in Revelation 15. This, this is being sang. Great and amazing are your deeds. Like as he's reigning his wrath on the earth. Just picture that for a minute. O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways. O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, all nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is what's being sung while these crazy things are happening as God rains his wrath down on the earth. Then there's another one in, in chapter 16. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. They're singing these things about the Lord and I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So they're praising God for his wrath, that he is raining down on evil, that he is 
uh, raining down on the earth. But it just made me think, we have no clue really how big God really is and how great he really is and how much he really should be revered and feared. I mean, we don't have, we're not scared of God because we get to come to him through Christ. We have the confidence to come to him through Christ. But, but we should still be like completely awestruck at who he is. You know, the fact that he deserves worship even while he's raining down his justice on the earth. Like we just, we just have no clue how big he really is. I think a lot of times we just think of him like this indulgent grandparent up in the sky. Oh, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> you did such a good day today. It's such a good thing today. You know, it's like, that's, that's not God. That's not who he is. He's awesome. And he's, he, he, we can't even fathom him, really. And because he is dangerous, he had to give very specific instructions then for approaching him. You can't just approach God. You'll, you'll be zapped into oblivion. I mean, you just, you'll just be gone. <laughs> you get too close. One author that I read said, uh, it's like we're rag dolls soaked in gasoline, and God is a consuming fire. So we get anywhere near him, and we're gone. That's how dangerous God is. So in Scripture, and with the Israelites specifically, he gave them very specific instructions about how they needed to act around him and how careful they needed to be and along with if, if, his, if his throne is going to be there with the ark, right? They needed to be really careful. He is dangerous because he is holy. That's what this is all about is really his holiness. He's set apart. He, he is completely transcendent. He's vast. He's got this un, like unquenchable awesomeness. I don't know how to describe God's holiness or his glory. I just have no words for it, really. There's no one like him at all, right? Okay, so it's with this in mind, this, that's why I wanted to mention all this. Like I wanted to kind of try and get a picture of how big God is. It's with this in mind that we have to approach this story of Uzzah. We have to remember how holy and awesome and dangerous God is. And yet he's enabled his presence to be on a box, basically, you know, on a wooden box, okay? So we're going to look, we're going to see three specific things tonight about God's holiness, I hope. Hope and pray <laughs> we see three specific things tonight. Now, in 1 Chronicles um, 13, you don't have to go there, you can if you want. I'll read it to you. The first four verses talk about how just the kind of the setup here for wanting to move the ark to Jerusalem. David consults with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, it says in verse 1 of 1 Chronicles 13. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and Levites in the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. Then let us bring again the ark of God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. All the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So now that David has moved like his palace and the capital to Jerusalem, he wants to move the center of worship to Jerusalem also. So he's asking everybody, what do you guys think? And they're like, yeah, I think that sounds like a good idea. We should do that. So then they try and do it, right? We already kind of talked about the story here of putting the ark. They put the ark on a new car and they're going to bring it to Jerusalem. So the place that they were at is about nine miles northeast of Jerusalem. That's where the ark was. It wasn't that far away, but they needed to travel about, about nine miles. So I just want to picture the scene here of David. You know, he gathers these 30,000. He gets permission from the elders and all the leaders. He gathers these 30,000 warriors. That's a lot of people. So if you've ever run the mini marathon, anyone run the mini marathon? Yeah. I didn't run. You didn't run. Anything. So there's usually like 30 or 35,000 runners. So, and it takes a while sometimes. Like, you know, the gun goes off, and I'm usually back in like, I don't know, K or something. They alphabetize you. And I'll be standing there for like 10 or 15 minutes before the line actually gets moving. 
So I had to sort of picture this 30,000, that's a lot of people for the ark. So I even wonder when Uzzah went down, like, did it take a while for it to even trickle through all the people? Like, what, what, what happened? Why are we stopped? What happened? <laughs> Why are we moving anymore? You know, just this is a big mass of people moving the ark just nine miles, okay? So you've got the warriors, you've got all these people. The ark is on a cart. They set off. And it sounds like they're having a great time. It sounds like uh, in verse 5 of, of chapter 6, it says, they were making merry before the Lord. So they're singing, you know, they are celebrating that they are bringing the ark back to them again. It's going to be in their presence. But then the oxen who are, that's pulling the cart, they stumble. And Uzzah instinctively puts his hand out to steady the ark, touches it, and instantly falls dead. And the party's over. They're not moving the ark anymore, okay? Here's what really gets me about the whole thing. God would have preferred that his earthly throne fell in the dirt. That's what he would have preferred over Uzzah's hand touching him. Yeah. He would have preferred it go in the dirt. So think of it this way. The earth has never committed the blasphemy of rejecting God's authority. Never has. The earth does everything that God tells it to whenever he says it. Not like us. The earth does everything, unlike humanity. So the dirt, in essence, was cleaner than Uzzah's sinful, defiled hand. Isn't that interesting? And God would have rather that ark fell in the dirt than his filthy hand touch it. But that's so backwards to what we're used to. You know, like a piece of food falls on the floor and we're like, oh, gross, <laughs> nobody eat that. <laughs> I'm throwing it away. We feel like it's so defiled all of a sudden because it touched the ground. This is really the opposite. So we're the defiled ones without Jesus. With Jesus, God sees Christ's holiness on us. But we're really the, the defiled ones. We're the ones that are unclean. God would have preferred that the ark fall in the dirt, whatever that would have meant. You know, if it would have been, if it was a big mud puddle, <laughs> he would have preferred that over as a touching it. So this whole thing is really a, a lesson for David, too, on who this God really is and on what... David's going to grasp a lot, I think, over the next... He has three months' time before he actually gets the Ark to Jerusalem, okay? So just think about him for a minute. This happens probably right in front of him. And verse 8 says he's angry. Mm -hmm. he's, he's angry at the Lord. I mean, Ezra was just trying to help. He was just trying to steady it so it didn't fall. David doesn't get it either at first. He's not thinking about how defiled we are as humanity and how holy God is. That's the lesson that God is going to teach him. Why does God burst forth against Uzzah? Because God is holy and Uzzah is not. So then in, in verse 9, David thinks to himself, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Like If this is how God acts, if, if this is what he does to someone who's trying to help keep the ark on the cart, how, how can the ark to me. He's really dumbfounded by it. He's also mad about it. He sees God's reaction as harsh. Harsh. Uzzah was just trying to help. So he leaves the ark then at the house of Obed-Edom, and he goes back to the palace to figure out the answer to his question. He goes back to figure out, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? I don't know. Then he gets word, uh, I think later on after studying this, that God had really blessed Obed-Edom. So one thing I read said that God was wooing David. David, you know you don't want to leave me here. You know you don't want to leave me here. Look, I am good. Even though I'm dangerous, I'm good. And I'm blessing this Gentile family because my presence is with them. I wonder if David was a little jealous about that. Like, oh, they're getting the blessing. <laughs> I want the blessing not just for him, but for the nation of Israel. It's with a Gentile family. We need to get the ark. 
But his big question, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? That's um, where I want to kind of settle in here for a minute. I'm going to go to 1 Chronicles 15.2. This is is just a little different. um, Well, this is when they bring the ark. So it just has a little bit more info for us in Chronicles. So 15.2 says, Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. So obviously David had learned something. So he, I'm assuming he had spent that, those three months that he was separated from the ark studying what God's law said, and he realized it, okay? He goes on then in verse 13, he's talking to them, and he says, because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord, he's talking to the Levites, because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So he understands now there is a particular way to God. How can the ark come to me? There is really a very particular way that it can come to me. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. So they do it right. David goes back. He ponders this question for a while. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? He studies the law and he realizes during that time there's only one way that the ark of the Lord can come to me. God's terms only. It can only come to me by God's terms. And what are those? Obedience and sacrifice. There's the two ways that the ark could come to him safely, obedience and sacrifice. So here's the first thing then that we see about God's holiness from the story. And this is your principle. God's holiness requires submission to God's terms. God's holiness requires submission to God's terms. God's holiness requires submission to God's terms. David realized God is so holy, he can't make up the rules. He has to follow the rules because God is holy. It all goes back to God's holiness. There's nothing in the the law about offering a sacrifice every six steps. That was David's own doing. But I imagine when he was studying all the law, what what he keeps seeing over and over, sacrifice, 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 sacrifice. And I think David realized blood has to be shed. What, in particular, you know, they had the Day of Atonement when blood was shed where? On the Ark of the Covenant. So I just wonder, we don't know, if they're making, then when they do bring the Ark, if they're making a sacrifice every six steps and sprinkling blood on the Ark, if the priest is sprinkling blood on the Ark. But what a picture, right? Blood everywhere, and this is the way that the Ark can come to him, with blood everywhere, obedience and sacrifice. That's the only way that the ark could come into Jerusalem. And David was absolutely right. That's the only way. It's, it's the same for us. It's such an incredible picture for us. It's only by Christ's sacrifice that we can draw near to God. That's it. How can the presence of the Lord come to me? There's only one way. Sacrifice. The blood of Jesus spilled for me. It is a bloody mess. And it's the only way that the presence of God can come to me. Only then can I enter into God's presence, especially with thanksgiving. At this time in the story, though, David didn't know that part yet, did he? All he knew was the animal sacrifices. That's all he could see. And yet, think about it this way. He danced before the Lord because of that. You know, we can see so, we, we, we get to see the big picture that that sacrifice, those animals, they pictured Christ. And I just kept thinking, how much more so should we be dancing in the streets? Like, we know that God died for us. David didn't know that yet. He just knew God made a way. God wanted to have a relationship with him. And God was going to allow his presence if he had enough blood and they sacrificed. 
and he danced like a crazy person in front of all these people. And yet we know the rest of the story, and most of the time we're not willing to dance. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying you got to be dancing in the aisles on Sunday morning. That could be a little bit embarrassing. But just your, how, how much do we really celebrate our relationship with God? You know, we can see the rest of that story, that there was only, there's only one way that God can come into my life, and God made it happen. That's just amazing to me. So what did David realize during those three months? Well, he realized how holy God is, I think, and how sinful we are. That's what I think he realized. (laughs) How lofty God is and how lowly we are. I think that's why he understood, I've got to be sacrificing the entire way into Jerusalem. And I think that's why, um, yeah, I, I truly think that's why David was dancing. He understood his sinfulness in that moment compared to God's holiness. God had schooled him on it. <laughs> he had watched Uzzah die, probably. I'm sure David was near the ark. And God worked in a mighty way then in David's heart, showing him his, God's holiness versus David's sinfulness. The more we understand God's holiness, I think the better we perceive our sinfulness, probably. You know, the more we can see how big and lofty God is, the more we can see really how terrible we are how filthy we really are. Now, this was really cool too. It's speculated that Psalm 24 is the psalm that David wrote for this occasion. And when I'm, I'm going to read it to you, and I just thought it was so neat. I never put this together before. So Psalm 24 starts like this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? So just think about him writing this for this occasion, right? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Who, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Okay. Now, here's where, this is the cool picture. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. So it's probably talking about the gates of Jerusalem. If you think about the ark coming in, just, just, it's just so cool. That the king of glory may come in. Isn't that cool? I've heard this, I've read this song before, but never thought about it with this occasion. (coughs) Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Isn't that neat? I can just hear, like, I can almost picture him, like, lift up your heads, O gates, like, singing that and dancing it and just, you know, bringing the ark in. Just picture this, now this incredible, Incredible celebration with people dancing and singing along with the blood, <laughs> the sacrifice. <laughs> Were you thinking about the blood too? Yeah, it's also very dirty. <laughs> right. So maybe David had, think about David dancing. Maybe he had blood splattered all over him. You know, like what a picture that is though. He's welcome into God's presence then, you know, with that linen ephod on. I just thought it was really cool to look at that psalm and then think about that ark coming in. And in that moment when he's bringing the ark into Jerusalem, David doesn't care what he looks like. He doesn't care at all what he looks like. All David cares about is the Lord at that moment. That's all he cares about. But then there's Michael, who we already talked about, who does care. And she's so disgusted by him. He's out there fraternizing with the people milling about them without his royal robes, probably without his crown. And she's just like, that is not how a king acts. Who, what are you doing? She says, how the king of Israel honored himself today. <laughs> I can just see her rolling her eyes. You know, you're not honoring yourself at all. She's totally mocking him. But we have to keep in mind then, as we mentioned earlier, that she grew up in royalty. David did not. So her understanding is that kings act a certain way. 
and like her dad, you know, I mean, she watched her dad and dancing in front of the people with the people alongside the people is certainly not how a king acts according to her eyes, right? But get this, and this was the coolest part for me. What do we see here? We see David not acting like the kings of the other nations. Isn't that so cool? Because he is not a king like the other nations. That's been our big theme. Saul has been a king like the other nations in every way, shape, and form. Right here, David is showing he is not a king like the other nations. We see him among the people. We see him dancing before the Lord. We see him worshiping. And then we see him offering gifts of fellowship. I think it said everyone went home that day with like a cake of raisins. He gave, that's it, he gave them extravagant gifts. And he gave it, it says, to the men and the women. Like everybody got them. Those were not cheap gifts. So he's giving, remember how we talked about how, um, how Israel, the king Israel chose would take, take, take? Here we have David again giving. We have God's king giving, and to everyone, luxuriously, everyone. He is not a king like the other nations. It's such a cool picture of Christ. Who did he come and hang out with? Us. All the filthy people. Who, what table did he sit at? Tax collectors, sinners. Because he is not a king like the other nations, right? It's just a really cool parallel with this between Christ and David and David dancing among the people and not caring at all. <clears throat> now here's another cool thing. What Michael literally accuses David of doing, I, I believe this is the wording, is departing from his glory. She accuses him of departing from his glory by not wearing his royal robes. But do you remember when the Ark of the Covenant was captured in 1 Samuel 4, what the wife of Phineas said? When the ark first went away in the Philistine territory, she said, the glory has departed. The glory has departed. So here's the contrast. Now the glory of God is returning to the people. This is the first time it's come back in 20 years. The glory of God is returning, and Michael is more concerned about David not upholding his own glory. And David doesn't care. He does not care about his own glory. I just have goosebumps. <laughs> That's so cool. That is the kind of king that God chose for Israel. One who didn't care about his own glory, but only cared about God's glory. And that's who Jesus is, even though Jesus is to be glorified. He, he glorified God the whole time he was here in everything that he did. David is truly a king after God's heart. Because David desires God's glory more than his own. He desires God's heart. He desires God's glory. I just thought it was really interesting that she, that Michael blames him, as it says, for not upholding his own glory. That the glory has departed from you. And he's like, I don't care. I'm giving it all to the Lord, right? So there's some really good application here for us. Michael's concern was how David looked to other people. That was her big thing. That's also what consumed Saul. He was always concerned about how he looked to other people and what people thought. But David's foremost concern is not how he looks to others, but his foremost concern is how God looks to others. He wants God to look good. He wants God to look good to the rest of the Israelites. He wants God celebrated before the people. He wants the people to see him worshiping God. He wanted God's holiness honored, upheld, and celebrated. And if that meant dancing in the streets, then so be it. He didn't care. Yet more often than not, what are we mostly concerned about? Us. What we look like. How we look in front of everybody else. Yeah, we're concerned about us. But we should be more concerned about how God looks. How are we portraying God to other people? How does he look through us? How are we upholding his reputation? When it comes down to it, it's not our reputation that really matters. It's God's. It's really his. 
all the time that matters. So this is our second point concerning God's holiness tonight. God's holiness requires we care more about God's reputation than ours. God's holiness requires that we care more about God's reputation than ours. God's holiness requires, and I do think it really requires it. He's just too holy. (laughs) It requires that we care more about God's reputation than ours. Who cares if the rest of the world thinks we're crazy, right? It's like, I need to get over myself. (laughs) Who cares? God is awesome, and he deserves all the glory, all the time. All the time. Any thoughts on chapter 6, on the ark, on David, God's holiness? Neat stuff, isn't it? Do you think he struck him down, too, because it was just a simple fact of, these are my commands and you're not following them? Yeah, I think there's definitely, yeah, I mean, he had said, if you touch it, you will die. And they touched the ark, yeah. for I sure. I don't care if you thought you were saving it or not. Yeah. This is my command and you're not doing it. Yes. And then another thing I read was that they, they thought, a, a commentator thought that God struck him down because God had to preserve his gospel. Yeah. yeah. You know, he had to preserve, you can't touch me. This is who I am. Mm-hmm. You can't get that close. You have to come a certain way. And if he had let us go at that point and let him live, he's not preserving what he, first of all, what he said, his promises, but just the gospel of who he is and how you come to God. So I thought that was an interesting point too. God had to strike him dead. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the kids were reading Exodus 19 this morning, and so we were talking about how God had said they couldn't touch Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. They could not come up, and I was like, guys, that's what I'm talking about tonight. God is too holy. We can't get, but we can, right? I mean, that's the amazing thing, and that's where chapter 7 leads. God is dangerous, and we can't get close to him just in and of ourselves, but then chapter 7 is all about how God is good. God might be dangerous, but he is so, so good. And he made a way. He made a way for us to be close to him. Okay, so chapter 7 then is, like I said, one of the most important chapters. It is the most important chapter, I'd say, of all of First and Second Samuel. It's also one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. This is where you get the Davidic covenant that God gave to David. And it is really important. This is the initial revealing that the promised Messiah would not only be the seed of the woman and an offspring of Abraham, but he would be a son of David and a son of God and thus a king forever. So this reveals a whole lot more information to them about who the Messiah is going to be. And then as the, as the kings continue down the line and the prophets continue to speak to the people, that's when more information is revealed about this king about this Messiah, okay? But this is initially where they find out, oh, David finds out this, the Messiah will come through me. He will be not just my son, but a son to God. And thus he will be, a, and he will reign forever. He will be a king forever. So this whole chapter starts then with David deciding he's going to build God a house. It's really a noble idea of him to want to build God a house, but it's also not a new idea as I discovered when I was reading, it was a really common practice in that day for kings to build houses or temples for their gods, right? So in some ways, it's kind of, in this way, almost like if he had followed through with this, he sort of would have been acting like a king of the other nations. So the idea was, number one, the king would build the temple. Number two, the temple would make the god famous. And then number three, the god would then bless the king and the kingdom for making him famous. So this God, this false God, would needed the king's help, really, you know. Um, so it's kind of like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, you do this for me, and I'll bless you. But is that how God works? No, that's not how God works at all. So God totally switches who's going to build who the house, 
in order to cast off the idea that, that God needs David in any way. God does not need David. He does not need David's help. This just goes right back to God's holiness, his transcendence, his separateness. He doesn't need anyone's help, especially David's. So in verse 6, I just thought it was fun that uh, the Lord sort of teases David. You're going to build me a house? After all these years, I've been living in a tent. You're going to build me a house? You think, I, did I ask for a house made out of cedar? You know, I've, I've not asked for anything. No, David, it's not you who's going to make me great. It's me who is going to make you great. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> he just kind of puts him back in his place. And then as we talked about, God makes these amazing promises, his covenant with David, that he's going to make his name great. And we're going to see this next week then as we head into chapter 8. Uh, and then he's going to give rest to the people. He's going to give them security. And then he's going to build David a house, a dynasty. So spe specifically then, God's going to raise up for him a son um, who will build God's house. And we know that was Solomon that actually did build the temple. And God promises then to establish David's kingdom forever. Verse 14 I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. 15 is interesting when God says, When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. We'll come back to that verse. <laughs> verse. I have a question for that. Yeah, I'll, we'll get to it here in a second. Verse 16 In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Amazing promises from God. So cool. So we know in the case of most prophecies, there's usually a dual meaning to prophecy. Uh, there's an immediate fulfillment a lot of times, and then there's a future fulfillment to prophecy. So I heard one of the best explanations this week I've ever heard. When you're like driving out to Colorado and you're, you finally see the Rocky Mountains in the distance, finally, after all those hours in Kansas, <laughs> you a lot of times, maybe you'll see like two peaks of the mountain range. And they look really close together, right? But then the closer and the closer you get, the farther, the farther, and the farther apart they get. So that's kind of like prophecy. So when we read it right here in Scripture, a lot of the dual meaning, they often look right side by side, right? But then the more we dig and the more we dig and the more we get into history and the more farther we go in, we realize they're not close together at all. <laughs> so we have... What God is promising here, he's going to initially fulfill it through Solomon. Solomon will build a house for God. He will build the temple. But then there's a lot more fulfillment that will happen. David, he lives around 1,000 um, B.C. So 1,000 years later is going to be Jesus who will come. And that's where, well, we'll get, well, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> A thousand years later, and then beyond that, though, we're not to that. I mean, Jesus does reign today, but he doesn't reign on earth, right? So still, that mountain peak is even farther away. We haven't yet gotten to that part yet. So what we see God doing here, specifically in verse 12 uh, of, this, of the Davidic covenant, God uses the word offspring. He says, your offspring that specific use of that word is meant to draw our attention back to the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12, 7, where he says, to your offspring I will give this land. God is tying all of this together. He's tying the past to the present, and then he's sending forth his word for the future. That's what's happening here. We're getting this, this long thread that's going all the way back to Abraham and then is still going today and we're not there yet. Does that make sense? So that's why in verse, in verse 19 during David's prayer, he actually says this is instruction for mankind or for humanity. Yeah, how he says it. But he sees this is a big picture going on here. So this is not just a promise of succession for David. It's a promise of salvation. And I think David does grasp some of that. I don't think he understands at all how God is going to do that. But um, I think he does grasp this is for humanity. This is not just for me. Okay, now I want you to listen then to Luke 
uh, when Gabriel comes to Mary, listen to what Gabriel says in Luke 1.31. He says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then listen to what specific things Gabriel says. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Do you see all of the parallels in what Gabriel pronounces to Mary? Where was that from? That's Luke 1, 31 through 33. Gabriel tells Mary he will be great, fulfilling verse 9 of the Davidic covenant. And then he says he will be the son of the Most High, fulfilling part of that, that, that part in verse 14. And then he says his kingdom will never end. So that fulfills that part of the Davidic covenant. So you see God just continue to give answers, but also just to carry this thread through. You guys, God truly does not need our help. Like, look at him weaving all of this together. No matter what humanity does, like no matter how far off course they were, God was still weaving this perfect plan all by himself because he is totally holy and above us and transcendent and unbelievable. I mean, that's just, that's just amazing to me how God continues to do that. Okay, now... Also, in this, it talks about how Solomon is building a house, right? But Christ is also building a house, isn't he? You really stop and think about it. What house is Jesus building? Mansions. Yeah, I know. And he's building the church, right, too. We are God's house today. And it's only Jesus who is building that. So there's another tie in there also. Christ is really the builder of God's house because Christ is the cornerstone. Talks about Christ being the cornerstone somewhere. I don't know where. Colossians 1.17, I think. That's where. Uh, he, he is also, Christ is God's house. He is the radiance of God's glory. But in Ephesians 2, it talks about how God, or J Jesus is building the house. He's building us. Uh, it says... Um, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Okay, it says it there too. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So there's another dual meaning there that looks side by side when you first look at the Davidic covenant and the prophecy that's there. Solomon did build a house, but then you have God's son, Jesus, who is actively building another house right now. We're a part of that house. I thought that was cool. I thought that was really cool. All right. <clears throat> and yet, we have this Jesus being the radiance of God's glory. He is the son. He is the forever king. He is the fulfillment he is perfection. He is holy. And yet, what does God do to Jesus? What did he do to him? Sacrificed him. And that's where we go back to verse 15. I will discipline him. Yes. What did verse 15 say? When he commits iniquity. Okay, obviously we know Jesus never committed iniquity. So you have to put those dual meanings next to each other again. And... He took on our iniquity, yes. So Solomon did commit iniquity, and the Lord never took his spirit away from Solomon, as he promised, um, but Jesus never did. He took on ours, yes, that's right. And then God disciplined for our iniquity. It actually, it, it, I had never put this together, but Isaiah 53, 5 you guys know that verse. It says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. So back in Samuel, with his stripes we are healed. Where God is talking about this, what's he saying? 15. 
was it 15? 14. 14. Yes. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Look how that connects. So God with the stripes, and then Isaiah 53.5 actually talks about the stripes. With his stripes, then we are healed. You guys, God is dangerous, but he is so, so good. That's the, that's the part, I mean, like, is dichotomy the word? Like, I mean, th those two just meet in the middle somehow. He is dangerous, but he is so, so good. Just look what God put in place for David. And yet, really what he was doing was putting it in place for us. All that was put in place so he could bless all the families of the earth, right? Through Abraham, through David, through Christ, we could then be blessed. God knew his holiness would only consume us. So what does he do? He sends Jesus to make us holy. <laughs> That's the only way. Sacrifice, obedience, holiness. The only way to come into God is to be holy yourself. So they would, the Israelites would try to do that through animal sacrifices. Jesus does that for us through his sacrifice. He makes us holy. God is dangerous, but he is really really good. We've done nothing. We've done absolutely nothing to deserve any of that or even to really help God out. God has done all of that all on his own, right? <laughs> he is taking care of the prophecies, taking care of all of that. And when I think about that, I just think, why am I not shouting about his goodness from the rooftops? Like, why am I not dancing like a crazy person because of how good God is? He is holy, he is dangerous, and yet he is so good. He's so good to me, so awesome. <clears throat> Looking at David's response in verse 18, he says, Who am I? And I just loved that. Who am I, O oh Lord? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes. Oh, Lord God, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great, great while, like forever, to come. And this is instruction for mankind, oh, Lord God. And what more can David <laughs> say to you? For you know your servant, oh, Lord God. He knows he's sinful. You know I'm sinful. That's what he's saying there. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness. Therefore, you are great, oh, Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you. I think David learned the lesson. <laughs> I think he caught on. And he's just totally flabbergasted at God's amazingness to him. In verse 25 then, David says, let me find it again. And now, O Lord God, he says, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And then this is key. He says, and your name will be magnified forever. So he's saying, if you do all of this as you've said you will do, and I'm asking you to do it, but the only reason I'm asking is because you've said it. Otherwise, I never would have asked. <laughs> That's my paraphrase of the whole thing. And then David follows it by saying, you will be magnified. There's really no other choice. If all of this happens, just as you say, you will be magnified forever. So here's our third point about God's holiness. God's holiness requires the pursuit of God's glory. God's holiness requires the pursuit of God's glory. God's holiness requires the pursuit of God's glory. When we're blown away by God and his holiness, we really have no choice but to bring him glory, but to glorify him. Our goal is not to get people to look at us and say, wow, look at all the things that they've done for God. They're so cool. They're so neat. No, our goal is to get the world to look at God. That should be our goal, not us, and go, wow, Look at all the great things God has done for them. That should be our goal. God must really love them. Wow, 
look at God in their life. But we often shine the light on ourselves instead of shining the light on God. It's true that God is dangerous, but also God is so good. And he's worth glorifying. He's worth upholding his reputation above our own, right? He's worth talking about. He's worth dancing for. I think the, the only true like response when you come face to face with God's holiness, when you study that, when you really look at it, is just unrestrained worship and adoration for God, just like David did. I think David could not have had a truer response to studying God's word, to being in the presence of God, to realizing who he really was compared to God. I mean, he's like, who am I, God? Who am I? <laughs> he already knew he was nothing compared to God. He calls himself, in, when he's interacting with Michael, a prince. He knows he's not the king. God is the king. And I love that David had grabbed hold of that because that's really the only response that's left for us is worship. We realize how holy God is, and yet he desired to be with us and that he made a way for us. Like, that, the only thing I can do is worship. <laughs> that's all I can do. And that is what God's holiness requires, his glory, his worship, like worshiping him. Any questions? What do you guys think? Good stuff, right? Just like, I'm just blown away again by God's holiness, and yet he's so dangerous, and yet he's so good to us at the same time. So, okay, let me pray, and I'll let you go. Father, praise you for your awesome splendor, your mighty power. I don't even know how to describe you, Lord. You are holy. You are set apart. You're transcendent. There's just no one like you. I know we can't even fathom you, Lord. I just, I just ask, Lord, that you would just forgive us tonight for seeking our own glory, for seeking it above, above you. You're the one that deserves it, Lord. And forgive us for worrying so much about what we look like and not enough about how you look to the rest of the world, God. And just help us, Father, to uphold your reputation like we should. Forgive us for making our own name great instead of making your name great. It's in Jesus' name we pray and thank you. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Can I take a call for, like, yeah. For